Good morning, church. Our scripture reading today is taken from the last chapter of Song of Songs, chapter 8. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. We have a little sister, she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Balhaman. He let out the vineyards to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening to your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bradley. And again, if you have not already opened up to Song of Songs chapter 8, please meet me there. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here. I'm grateful to come to an end of a really important series, I think, for us the past eight weeks, or rather seven, this being the eighth. Um, have really been shaping and I hope helpful uh, for each of you. And also, congratulations, you've gone through the Song of Songs <laughs> now. That is a, a big notch in your Christian belt, and not many people can say that. So I think there's like 50 of us, so praise God. Um, we, we come to chapter 8, and I think particularly what we ought to keep in mind is this idea of covenant. Um, a covenant is a promise. It's what defines a relationship. And from the very beginning, God has used the language of covenant to establish his people in relationship with his people. In fact, Adam and Eve themselves, they, they enjoyed a life and a relationship with God within the garden so long as they abstained from a single tree. So it was simple and it was clear, but nevertheless, it was a covenant relationship built on promises. God also made a covenant with Noah. After the flood, God tells Noah, you know that guy who eventually builds this ark, tells his family that he will never cut off flesh and destroy the world again. However, it's not until God establishes the nation of Israel, the people of God, if you will, through a man named Abraham, that he formalizes covenantal terms. And so, in essence, we get these whispers of covenant up until this point in Genesis chapter 12, where we meet Abraham, and all of a sudden, this language of covenant starts to become much more crystallized, much more established and formal. And so, God makes Abraham a promise, 
A covenant is a promise. It defines a relationship. And when Abraham is nearly 100 years old, God told him this in Genesis chapter 17. He says, I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to you, to be your God rather, and to your offspring after you. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, we'll explore in a minute the details of that covenant, but for now, let's simply consider this, what this tells us about God, that God is a God who makes covenants, that God is a covenant-making God. Presumably, God could have established relationships with humanity, a relationship with humanity, however He wanted. In fact, He could have decided not to establish a relationship at all, and many people actually believe that today. It's, it's a theory, it's a worldview, it's a, an idea, theology, that's called deism, and we'll get to that more in a bit. And many who maybe don't even know that they think this way live this way. That's called moralistic therapeutic deism, and that's a really fun term, and I'm just going to talk about something I think is really interesting today and invite you along the journey. But many people live a particular way that God is essentially there, but He's not here. Some believe a higher power exists, but that He or she or it doesn't intervene in the lives of humanity. So the supreme being creates, then sort of steps back and merely observes. See, God is there, but He's not here. He is up there, but He is not down here. Yet what the Bible reveals to us is a deeply personal God, namely Yahweh, His covenant name, the God who makes and keeps promises. See, God desires and does establish relationship with people, and that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about covenant. I want to talk about how the nature of that covenant reveals God's nature and how it ought to shape our relationship with Him. How often it doesn't, but how it, it's meant to shape our relationship with the God of the Bible. So here's how we'll organize our time. As we've done the past seven weeks, we'll look at the design, the distortion, and the healing. The design of covenant, the distortion of covenant, and then the healing of covenant. Let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, as usual, but in particular when we come to your word, we are unable to understand what you are saying without your help. Not because you don't communicate clearly or lovingly, but simply because we're limited. And so we ask that you would help us. As Jesus taught his disciples, I pray you'd give us ears to hear. A kind of hearing that isn't just in one ear and out the other, but that it would penetrate deeply into our hearts and minds and it would transform us, as Paul talks about in Romans 12, it would renew our minds, that we would think differently because of your grace, because of your truth, because of your beauty, because of your kindness, because of your love, because you are a God who makes and keeps covenant promises. I pray for myself, I pray for my friends. We don't always know what to expect when we step into your word, but you are always faithful to never expose what you don't intend to heal. And so even when it gets uncomfortable, Father, I pray that you would help us to trust that you are very present help in time of trouble, and you are a God who is all about our healing and wholeness and joy. And so we ask for your help. We ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would make us a people who reflect your nature and beauty and your character. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
So as we've considered in previous weeks, marriage is the Bible's primary metaphor uh, for our relationship with God. From creation to redemption on into the age to come, marriage is the thing that illustrates for us what it looks like to be in covenant with God. Even that word covenant is perhaps most familiar to us because of covenants we make in marriage, that we get before people, we make promises one to another. It's the primary lens, then, through which we've been reading the book of Song of Songs. Now, while I hope this series has helped sharpen your understanding of sex and sexuality and romance and even our own bodies, as I know the Lord has used it in my own life, I hope all of that has happened because you've gotten a clearer view of who God is so that you have understood yourself more clearly because you've understood Him more clearly. See, Song of Songs points us to a love of loves. We said this way back in chapter 1 from the very beginning. Not because the couple's love is some allegory from which we should only refer, think about the spiritual realm, but rather because marriage in general, and sex in particular, Paul calls it a mystery that refers or bears witness to God and His people. That's always been the design. In its imperfections, even in its brokenness, it's meant to point us to a greater covenant, a greater love. And in the final chapter, this is perhaps the clearest display of that mystery. Let's look, uh, rather, Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who or she who used to teach me, I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor." So the woman carries uh, on in a very similar pattern of previous displays of affection. In fact, a lot of different themes that we've looked at through the first seven chapters of Song of Songs are repeated or whispered, if you will, in the opening of chapter 8. The woman is carrying on in a similar pattern. She conveys a deep desire for intimacy, but she does it in a really unexpected way, at least unexpected for our modern ears. But she's getting at this language or this intimacy through the language of family. See, for many of us, it probably sounds super odd that she's like, I wish that you were my brother because then we could kiss in public. That, but that's what she says, <laughs> right? It's, it's really challenging for us to go, that doesn't seem like a good idea at all. Um, but it seems as though from her cultural vantage point in her uh, everyday life, it was more permissible to show public displays of affection with your siblings than it was with your spouse or with your lover. And so that's what she's saying. She's not saying, I wish you were my brother, because then we'd have all kinds of other, this would be another two months of a sermon series. I think we'd have to unpack that single line. But she's communicating her desire to to be intimate, to demonstrate her affection for him in public. She doesn't want to be private with it. She wants everybody to know how she feels, and yet culturally she's bound up a little bit. Motherhood is used in a similar and unexpected sort of poetic fashion, if you will. See, the intimacy of breastfeeding and the power of conception and labor, all of these things she uses not to convey that she wishes their actual relationship was different, but this is the bride's ever-growing desire to be close to her groom. See, the intimacy culminates in this, this stanza, if you will, of relationship that is without question, this intimacy of brotherhood, this intimacy of motherhood. 
See, ultimately, all of this culminates in the next stanza, which many Bible teachers see as the the absolute centerpiece of the song. It's the strongest language possible. The bride begins to paint this picture of her love for her husband. Look at verse 6. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. That's a covenant. It's a promise. It's what defines their relationship. Now, we've been talking about love the entire time, but we've been talking about it in a lot of different ways and through a lot of different metaphors or illustrations or word pictures. But according to scholar Michael Sadgrove, this, he says, is the only place in the song where any attempt is probed of the meaning of love. Everywhere else, it's simply described. So here we get the most crystallized picture, the clearest articulation, and she's talking about love as a covenant promise. She defines her marriage through four similes, and in each of those, each of those similes point us to the design of covenant, specifically, or rather ultimately, the covenant that we have with the Lord. Look at the first in verse 6, the very beginning of verse 6. She says, love is like a seal on the heart and the arm. A seal conveys permanence and exclusivity. See, in both the indefinite and monogamous nature of marriage, we're meant to see the beautifully restrictive nature of God's covenant with His people. You know, in Psalm 136, 26 times this language of covenant is repeated over and over and over again, and it's communicated throughout the Scriptures. Psalm 136 says, the steadfast love of God, what, endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. That's covenant. See, the word steadfast in English is really the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is God's permanent and persistent love. It is His covenant faithfulness. And I hear Richard Hess in my head from all of my seminary classes. He's like, if you get one Hebrew word, please get this one. And literally, that's the only Hebrew word that I ever remember getting right on a test. Not good at Hebrew. Anyway, so Richard Hess centers the idea of all biblical theology from the Old Testament through this idea Another theologian says that hesed relates to the loyalty within a relationship. In relation to the concept of love, it denotes God's faithfulness to His people. And so what we learn here from the Song of Songs is that God's love is a seal upon the life of a believer. This is what Jeremiah 31 teaches us. And like in marriage, this seal has two aspects. You know that the woman says that it's on the heart and the arm. It's on the heart and the arm. One is inward and one is outward. So the woman is asking her beloved to mark her on his inner and outer life. What's that mean? Well, she wants his utter devotion to her to not simply sink deeply within his soul and in his personality and his self-concept, but also to animate his actions and relationships and words. In other words, she knows that true, authentic intimacy and covenant and love is not something that is merely a display for other people to see, nor is it a secret that you keep within yourself. It's both. 
We would all have relationship issues if we said, baby, you know that I love you, but I'm just not going to say it. I'm not going to tell anybody, but you know, we got a good thing going on. Let's just keep it a secret, right? You're like, that's not good with me. Or someone who always is demonstrating to the world how much that they love you, but in secret, there's really no chemistry. There's no intimacy. You would say that seems like hypocrisy. There's duplicity in that. So she wants this wholeness, this togetherness, this fullness of love, and God desires the same thing from us. See, true covenant is not simply what we believe and what we know to be true in our interior lives, but relationship with God is demonstrated in our decision-making. It's demonstrated in the way we love our neighbors and how we speak to each other. It's not just what we believe inwardly, it's what we live and how we live externally. So God's covenant, then, is a seal within us and outside. It's inside out. She also says in the second portion of verse 6, that love is strong as death. People who are in love always talk like this, right? I love you forever and always, right? Love you forever, 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 forever. All this kind of language sort of leaks from our lips when we talk about romantic love in particular. We, we all know, though, <laughs> that love doesn't go past death, does it? When we're dead, we don't love anymore. We can't, but, but let's think about this biblically. So we think about it only physically, and there's sort of an end in mind. But what the bride is hinting at is a unique perspective of God's covenant people. See, the ancient Near East understood good and evil, life and death, as equally matched powers vying for an uncertain outcome. And if we're not careful, we look at good and evil the same way. We look at life and death the same way. Let's see how it works out. We don't really know. But God's people knew that death was no match to God. Death was no match for God. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. He said, He that is God will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will take, be, will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. What's that telling us? That God is stronger than death. That God is stronger than than death. God will swallow up death, Isaiah said. Therefore, his hesed, his steadfast covenantal love, is not only as strong in death, church in the square, it's stronger than death. It's stronger than death. Jesus made it clear that there's no marriage in the age to come, so it's a bit of a spoiler alert, right? might be a chapter of Matthew we've tried to skip, but in Matthew chapter 22, responding to this trap that some religious leaders had set for him, he says, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So here's what, when we look at Song of Songs and Isaiah and Matthew, and we look at the whole council of Scripture, we realize that marriage is not stronger than death, but God's covenant is. The relationship you and I may enjoy on this earth is not the strongest relationship that we have, but we have a relationship, a chesed, with the Lord. In that sense, author Mike Mason says in his book, The Mystery of Marriage, that heaven will be all marriage. In eternity, everyone is to be married to everyone else in some transcendent and unimaginable union, and everyone will love everyone else with an intensity akin to that which we now simply know as being in love. It's so hard to grasp this idea that the thing that many of us are still searching for and longing for, what the Scriptures say is one day in the age to come, we will all know that wholeness. We will all know that intimacy. We will all know that chesed. We will all enjoy that, where all of God's people will indeed be one. See, God's love, God's covenant is stronger than death. 
She also says, in the third portion of verse 3, she packed a lot in this verse, y'all. Love, she says, is jealous as the grave. See, we usually think about jealousy as a negative. But within the language of the divine covenant, it's always expressed as an expression of righteous, single-minded devotion. Temper Longman describes jealousy, I love this, as the energy that tries to rescue the relationship from peril. The energy that rescues a relationship from peril, especially the peril of a competing and destructing love of another. You see, I'm jealous for my wife, not simply because I don't want to share her, but because sharing corrodes the covenant. Sharing corrupts and even threatens a covenantal love. So I have a jealousy, and God has a jealousy. The prophet Nahum put it about as fine a point as you possibly could about God's covenant jealousy as you can when he says in Nahum chapter 1, he said, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Your translation may even call him an avenger, which is kind of interesting. That's kind of dope. That the Lord is an avenger. He's avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemy. Now, Nahum prophesied at a time when a nation called Nineveh of Jonah fame, right, wouldn't repent and were brutally mistreating a ton of different nations, including Israel, including God's people. So what is God doing? He's putting them on notice. Don't come at my people. Don't mess with my people. I will come after you. He's a jealous God. Don't bring these false gods. Don't bring these false loves into my house. I will protect them, and I will protect them from you. You are a threat. See, jealousy is like a grave then because the grave is tenacious, isn't it? It's unrelenting. It doesn't take no for an answer. So with tension of the previous word picture, the grave the woman is saying, always wins. The grave always wins. So God's covenant is tenacious like the grave. Fourthly, she says that love is intense as fire. Not only is the covenant holistic, is it a seal on the heart and arm, not only is it permanent, is it stronger than death, but it's tenacious like the grave and it's intense. It's not passive. It's not minimal. It's not just doing enough work. The entire song is one of intense relational and sexual passion. Through graphic description and unmistakable pleasure, the couple loves being in love. They're pumped to get married. They're pumped to have sex. They're pumped to be together. They love being in love. And few passages in all of Scripture convey similar zeal for the covenant than when Jesus comes to the temple at Passover. Do you know this story? See, while the temple was meant to be a house of prayer and worship, thousands packed the halls to buy and trade and sell. And is Jesus chill about it? No. He is not chill about it. In fact, the apostle John tells us that in the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a cord, a whip of cords, He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the money, the coins of the money changers, and overturned their tables. This is wild. There's no better way to explain or to describe Jesus here than he is like a man set on fire. He is fired up. He's hot. He's passionate. He's intense. 
but he's also self-controlled. He's not angry to the point of sin. He's not being manipulative or harmful. He's demonstrating a deep and abiding covenantal love for his people, which is not simply committed to the appearance of a good and nice and happy marriage with his people, but the reality of a pure union. He's fired up. Don't mess with my people. I'm jealous for them. I'm passionate for them. God's covenant is like that. God's covenant is like a passionate fire burning through a temple, making it pure and holy, restoring it to what it should be. This is why a lot of times I think we are shocked by the consequences of sin. We're shocked even maybe in this community when someone who loves us is trying to help us walk in a particular way. We're not very passionate about the covenant. We're like, it's fine. Lord's chill. I don't know. Seems like maybe he's not chill about some things. Seems like he's not chill about some things. He's jealous. He's passionate. That's the design of the covenant. It's a promise. It's a promise that defines the relationship. See, God vows to be our God and we to be his people. It's a promise of a holistic seal that's stronger than death, tenacious like the grave, and passionate like fire. Yet like Israel, we've all broken this promise. We've all broken the covenant relationship. After all, every covenant has two parties. God even informed Abraham from the very beginning that I'll be your God, but here's what I want you and how I want you to embrace the covenant. God told Abraham that he and Israel had a part of the covenant to keep themselves, and here's where the distortion comes in. See, we've all distorted God's covenant faithfulness in different ways, but every distortion is the result of idolatry. Idolatry is covenanting with someone else. It's covenanting with someone else. It's a broken promise. Idolatry then redefines the relationship with God. That's why biblical writers talk about idolatry through the language of covenant. Prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea all speak about worshiping other gods with the language of committing adultery. Ezekiel 27, or 23 rather, verse 37, while their idols, with their idols rather, they have committed adultery and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they have borne to me. Now, to the modern ear, for us, this language may seem excessive, like, this is not that big a deal. Why are you, why are you escalating the situation? But if God's people are established through covenant promises, then breaking promises are tantamount to infidelity. After his teaching about marriage, another group of spiritual teachers came up to Jesus, and they're always trying to trap him. They're always trying to throw out some sort of legal loophole for more fodder in the first century, like rabbi world. And here they ask Jesus a common question. They ask, what's the greatest commandment? And of all the things that Jesus could have said, Matthew 22, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the, the great and first commandment. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, which is known popularly as the Shema, something that Jewish people quote to this day every single day conveys holistic love, strong, it's enduring, it's intense, it's a covenantal love that complements the covenantal love of God. God gives me his whole self with all of that passion, that, that exclusivity, that seal, that jealousy, that, that death-like grip. I want to do that too. I want to reciprocate. You see, the greatest commandment in a nutshell is to love God 
It's not to obey or serve or follow him, though likely all of those things are presumed within that idea of love. But of all of the ways that Jesus could have conveyed his chief moral ethic, he says, love the Lord your God. Love him. So if loving God is part of our covenantal promise, then idolatry and covenantal infidelity is loving something or someone else more or before God. That's the distortion. The distortion of covenant is loving something, anything, someone more than God or before God. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1, they exchanged the glory of God the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So for Israel, idolatry was usually about worshiping another physical invisible God. But for us, it's usually a matter of deism. God is out there, but God is not down here. God is up there, but he is not here with us. And so we learn to love things here in real space and time that we can taste and touch and see more than we love God. That's idolatry. That's the distortion. Now, again, the most common manifestation of this distortion is what, again, is called moralistic therapeutic deism. It sounds like a mouthful, and it sounds like something interesting to go on a rabbit trail about, but I think it'll be helpful. So track with me for a second. In 2005, sociologist Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist-Denton coined this term, and in their book, soul-searching. They laid out five core doctrines of moralistic therapeutic deism. See if it hits. The first, God made everything and watches over humanity. The second, God wants us to be good and nice. The third, the point of life is to be happy and feel good about ourselves. The fourth, God doesn't intervene except to solve some, you know, bigger problems. Good people, fifth, go to heaven when they die. So it's moral. We should be nice. Don't be a punk. It's therapeutic. It's about me feeling comfortable and happy and feeling good. It's deistic. God is there, but God is not here. Now, why is this so critical for us to unpack and to understand? Well, Smith and Denton studied teenagers in 2005. Do you know who was a teenager in 2005? Most of the people in this room. Most of the people in this room. See, those teenagers are in their 30s and 40s now, part of the largest generation in U.S. history. We affectionately, lovingly call these 72.3 million people millennials. We love these people. They're incredible. That means, though, that moralistic therapeutic deism is not just some side weird idea. This is the prevailing religious ethic of our country. Just simply if you do a numbers assessment. No matter what you call yourself, this is what we value. This is how we see the world. Inside and out of the church, millions of Americans have this vague sense of spirituality, a higher power, a right and wrong, but no covenant, no relationship, no love, no promise. We imagine God not as a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, but rather as a passive, disembodied force who doles out spiritual blessings and good vibes to nice people, right? This is a view of God we wrestle with. This is a view of God we bump into everywhere we go. And so, we function like spiritual orphans and individuals who are free to love and be devoted to countless other things besides the God of the Bible. We are casual in our open relationship with God. We don't recognize other loves as a threat. They're just sort of things that we do, and it's fine, it's chill, it's cool, relax. After Paul left Galatia, he was not relaxed. (laughs) 
uh, he got word that the churches and the regions had distorted his gospel message. He wrote back to them saying in Galatians chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Jesus and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Do you feel the passion? Do you feel the seal? Do you feel the strength of death in the grave? You see, other messengers and messages had infiltrated these churches. They sounded right. They sounded nice. They sounded good. They sounded spiritual and uber helpful. However, they were preaching idolatry. Namely, they were telling God's people they needed Jesus and compliance to certain laws. It was an abandonment or a desertion, a distortion of the good news of Jesus and his covenant of grace. Church in the square, idols never demand your complete allegiance at first. They never demand your complete allegiance at first. They just want to be included. Just add me to your life. Just one thing on the list of a bunch of others. See, in Galatia, the teachers were not suggesting replacing Jesus. They're like Jesus and circumcision. It's cool. We're down with Jesus. That's great. But you can also do this. You see, it's just an addition. It's not a new promise. It's not a new covenant. The same is true for us. Money doesn't say abandon your religion. In fact, money says God wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to. This is actually a blessing from him. This is a good thing. You should hoard as much of it as you possibly can. Your life will go better. Sex doesn't demand your complete faithfulness. It just says God wants you to have intimacy, right? He wants you to feel good, right? So just add it to your relationship with him. Power doesn't require your complete surrender at first. It just tells you God wants to use you to do great things. And if there's any lie I've believed most of my life, it's that that power and fame, they're right around the corner because I'm a really incredible person who God wants to use for his glory. So give me as much power as I possibly can. See, these, this is what idols always do. They just want to be included at first. But eventually they demand your heart. They always demand your heart. They become the very thing that we love more and before God himself. And Jesus knew this. And so he says in his Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, for you will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. That's the distortion. We think we can have our God and our idols too, but his jealousy, his jealous covenant won't stand for it. And that's actually really good news because he says he wants to heal the relationship. God's covenant promise to make him a father of many nations, came to Abraham again when he was like 100 years old. Suffice to say, it's pretty late in light to have a kid. Just not trying to say anything. This is just information. And so, when he heard that God said, you're going to have a son, you know what he does? He laughs. He falls on his face and he laughs. It's a superhuman, right? Nevertheless, the couple who has longed for each other their entire life, they become parents. And early, like any young parent, their heart is tempted to not just thank God for Isaac, but their heart becomes wrapped around Isaac. The temptation would have been to take this gift from God, uh, something that was a blessing from God, and make him their God himself. So there's a test. God tells Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
Now, at first, doesn't this seem like the God who makes promises is about to break one? God said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And literally the first kid that shows up, he's like, let's just offer him up now. That seems like the opposite of what you've promised. So you can imagine that, I mean, also this is his kid, that Abraham's wrestling with this a little bit. Something else, though, is going on underneath the surface. See, it's not only not putting the covenant in jeopardy. This moment is establishing the covenant forever. You see, whenever we love something more than God or before God, it ultimately crushes you and it crushes the idol. Both end in destruction. And why does this happen? Because we can never get from idols what we can only get from God, namely love. Church, your idols never love you back, ever. They never return your affection. They never center you as you center them. So whatever we treat as a God can't withstand the weight of our worship. Reflecting on Abraham's story, Pastor Tim Keller explains it this way in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, God was not saying you cannot love your son, but that you must not turn a loved one into a counterfeit God. If anyone puts a child in the place of the true God, it creates an idolatrous love that will smother the child and strangle the relationship. We could say that about any idol. God is helping Abraham, in other words, order his loves properly. That's the healing. That's the healing we all need. As St. Augustine has said, a good and just person is a person who has rightly ordered his loves so that he does not love what is wrong to love or fail to love what they should love or love too much what should be loved less or we might add love too little what should be loved more. The healing of the covenant is that it empowers us to order our loves properly. The Lord does not disregard the covenant. He does not dispose of the covenant. He helps to reorder the covenant. This is what we sense as the song comes to a close. Loves are in order. Song of Songs 8, verse 8. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we would build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyards to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousands and the keeper of fruit two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Maturity has taken place. Transformation. When we look back at the whole of the song of this collection of poetry, we see transformation and healing are in full bloom the woman who was abused by her family in their own vineyard, now she has a vineyard of her own. A woman who was young is now old. A woman who is riddled with shame has found peace. And it is all through this lens or the power of the covenant, a jealous and fierce and intense love. See, though I'm sure he struggled and likely had some really crazy conversations with his wife, Sarah, 
Um, can you imagine? Abraham did walk his son up that mountain and prepared to sacrifice him. And in fact, when Isaac asked his dad when they got to the top or near the top, what are we going to burn at the top of this climb? Like, what's the sacrifice going to be? You know, instead of just going, well, you know, you look pretty good. Um, Abraham says in Genesis 22, verse 8, he said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He said, God will provide. If you know the story, you know that's exactly what happened. As he lifted the knife to kill his son, an angel of the Lord called out to Abraham. And then he notices a ram caught in the thicket. And it's the animal that they took and sacrificed in the place of Isaac. This whispers to us, of course, the gift of another son, an only son that is beloved by his father. See, when Jesus starts his public ministry, John the Baptist didn't get it twisted. When he saw him, you know what he says, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the ram in the thicket. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, Jesus is the one who willingly is caught in the thicket and takes our place on the altar, the altar of this covenant. This is how jealous and passionate and committed God is to His Word, His promises, and His people. And my sister and brother, this is how committed He is to you. On those nights when you and I are riddled with shame, this is how committed He is to you. This is how passionate He is for you. On those group times when we gather up and we finally confess that sin that has been weighing down on our shoulders, this is how much He loves you in that moment. And when you're unsure that you could ever tell anybody what's going on in your life, this is how much He loves you in that moment when you are grieving death, when you are about to go through a divorce, when you cannot have children, when you're not getting married in the time that you want. This is how committed God is to you. When sin is surrounding us, when shame is surrounding us, when pain is surrounding us, when just punks and annoying people are weighing you down, this is how committed the God of the Bible is to you. He's passionate. He's jealous. He's as fierce and as loyal as the grave. He never takes no for an answer. He's going to hold on to you. Get it tatted on your heart or your arm. That's what the bride says. Seal it up. That's what it's about. You are locked up in this relationship. See, when we gave ourselves to the idols of this world, when we were faithless, Paul tells young Timothy, God was faithful. He did not deny himself. In other words, he did not betray the covenant. The God who makes and keeps promises sends his one and only son to die in our place and for our sin. Why? To keep up your end of the bargain and mine. This is how beautiful the covenant is. God makes and keeps his word, and when we made and did not keep our word, he's like, I'll hold that end of the bargain together too. I'll give my son. He keeps his promise, and he keeps ours. He is the God who is there, and he is the God who came down here. He is the God who makes and keeps the covenant. See, covenant is a promise. Covenant defines the relationship, and therefore covenant tells you the truest thing about you is that you are loved. May that settle in your heart. May that be written on your arm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, left to ourselves, we define the relationship in a lot of broken ways. We betray the covenant. Sometimes we don't even know that we're doing it. And so we need your help. Help us to see ourselves and each other the way that you see us. As a sealed people, as a loved people, as a kept people, 
as a people who, though they were faithless, you have been faithful. And as we are reminded of who we are, would we lift our eyes to you and see our Heavenly Father, our loving spouse who has been constant, who has been steady, who has been forgiving, who has been gracious, who has been kind, who has met us in the valley of the shadows and has given us peace. So would you wake that up in our souls today so that we might live as a people who belong to a really faithful and loving God, the God of steadfast love that endures forever. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.